Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of Avid Realty Partners, Craig Berger. Craig, thanks for coming on. Really thanks appreciate it. Thanks for having it. me. Of course. Um, so walk us through your journey in commercial real estate and kind of give us a breakdown of how you got into this business. Wow. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, so I spent 12 years on Wall Street as an equities analyst um, uh, in my late 20s and most of my 30s. And that was great. Had the the good fortune of living and breathing the stock market, writing the economic cycles and underwriting companies and um, learning risk management and developing an institutional mindset. But after a while of writing research and opining about what other people were doing, um, I thirsted to to want to do more. I wanted to get in the game and build something meaningful and and try to attempt to take control of my own destiny and, and build something. Um, so walked away from my desk job in late 2014 and, and um, figured that real estate gave me a 50-50 shot of of survival, right? Uh, I'd done a few fix and flips on the side. And so um, sort of got a small taste for it and, and, and just kind of went from there. Got it. Um, and when did you kind of do, walk us through your first fix and flip uh, that you were doing on the side while you were working? Uh, I had a full-time desk job, um, found a partner in my, in my local hometown of St. Louis, and we just sort of jumped in. Um, I didn't make a lot of money. I didn't lose a lot of money, but I, I guess I learned a lot. Experience. Um, you know, some people study a lot and do a lot of research and whatnot. And I just sort of just did the opposite and just sort of jumped in, jumped in. Um, for better, for worse. But it was a valuable learning experience and I made a bunch of mistakes. And now I'm now I'm uh, past those mistakes and right. making whole new mistakes. Got it. Okay. And do you think any of your skills from equity research or your network from equity research kind of translated into real estate? Did my network from Equity Research Translate? No, not really. Um, those those folks, some great folks, but they knew me as a semiconductor's equ equity analyst, okay. and they didn't know me as real estate, and I didn't have the bona fides and the credentials, and so I've had to um, really start from scratch and totally reinvent myself and, and earn those accolades. And mm. now, eight or ten years later, some of them are starting to to come back, come back into the into the fold, mm. and have seen what we've what we've built. Um, you know, want the benefits of cash flow, hopefully appreciation, tax tax benefits, hedge against inflation, all the all the reasons that we like real estate and especially multifamily. But um, I've had to earn their respect all Got over it. again. Okay, which makes yeah. sense, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. And as far as technical skills, um, did any of them translate over to what you're doing today? And do you kind of look at things differently than other operators? I think. Spending 12 years as an equities analyst provided a lot of benefit for me um, in terms of just understanding the broader macro, understanding Fed speak, understanding interest rates, how important that is, understanding how everything's a cycle. Um, now, understanding all of that and being able to capitalize on it in the real world uh, translates a lot. It doesn't always translate 100%, mm -hmm. but... Um, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, that cyclical experience has, has been helpful. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I feel fortunate. On the other hand, I can't help but wonder if I started in multifamily 12 years earlier, right. where would I be? Definitely. Um, you know, it was a pretty big run from 
2010 to 2021. Mm -hmm. And I sort of, you know, caught a little bit of it. Um, but not as much as if I had been earlier into the, into the, uh, right. Yeah. That makes sense. Into the multifamily game. Mm -hmm. And, um, what is there a gap that you saw in the market when you decided to, to, to transition into commercial real estate or did you kind of just do it because you wanted to run your own business? Well, I did it because I want, want to build something okay. and I want to survive and you obviously need to make money and, and, and generate economics to do so. But I do think there's always a gap in the marketplace. There's always a place to fill for people that operate with integrity mm -hmm. and for people that are very focused on execution. Um, this economic downturn we're in has forced me to get better at execution mm. and hire better people okay. and get smarter. Um, but you know, two things that, that I'm focused on are radical integrity in everything that we do. And that means putting myself last and least and, um, really robust execution at the property level and at the organizational level. Got it. Okay. And you said in an interview that the way that you entered into the industry wasn't fully ideal. If you were to go back in time and start things a little differently, how would you do it? Yeah, don't do what I did. Um, <laughs> I just sort of, you know, jumped in and, and bought a, you know, lower demographic um, property. It was full. It was very inexpensive. It was 400000 of equity. And I did half of that out of pocket and my other partners did half of it out of pocket and we got into the game, which is good. Things have gotten more expensive and it's a more competitive environment. Um, I think if you're starting today, uh, working for an investment sales broker is a great option. Okay. You learn the business, you can make salary, you can earn some keep the lights on money, you learn the players. If you see something that you like, you can go and buy it for yourself on the side. Right. I don't think that's a conflict of interest. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of one way to do it, right? Another way to do it would be, right, go go work for a big multifamily player. Or if you like hotels, go work for a big hotel player. Right. Right. Start start low and learn the business and work your way up. And, and then again, if there's um, something that you like and your employer has decided they don't want to do it and they've said, Hey, go for it on the side a little bit. Then, then I think you're, that's fair game. Got it. Um, I would always tell my employer, I would always give them sort of a, a right of first refusal to buy the deal or participate in a deal. But, um, you know, your first deal may not likely going to be something that your, mm. um, very large employer is going to be interested in mm. Definitely. a couple, couple ways to learn, earn some money, make salary, and still pursue opportunities that are interesting to you. Got it. Um, and as far as this entrepreneurial spirit, have you kind of always had this, this bug that you want to, you know, go out there and start your own business and lead a team? I've had to explore it. Um, but yes, I have. I have, but, you know, I sort of went the safe path, right? I went to school. Uh, I got an undergrad master's degree in five years, then I went and got a job, then I went and got a better job, and then it was sort of too hard to leave. I was making decent money. It wasn't great money. It was decent money, but um, it's hard to walk away from that and start over. Mm. Um, maybe I shouldn't have started over. Maybe I should have gone to work for 
gone gone to a hedge fund and okay. gotten into the game that way, right? But um, I didn't want to work for other people anymore, uh, and that's sort of where I was at 37 years old. And you know, for better for worse, um, that may not have been the right path, but. Um, that's my story. And, and, you know, for others starting out, I'd say go work for someone else. Got it. Okay. Understood. Um, and can you give us an overview of what Avid Realty Partners is and what you kind of focus on? Sure. So we're a, a real estate investment platform. Um, we've uh, dabbled in hotels. We've bought and sold a net lease asset. But, but you know, um, by and large, we're a multifamily platform. Um, the only assets that we own today are multifamily. We've, we've bought about 2,000 units. We've sold about um, about 600 of those units. We've got about 1,400 units in the portfolio. We've acquired about 275 million of total product. Um, we've gone full cycle on six deals. Um, a cooperative market deserves most of the credit mm. uh, for those exits. Um, but we did, you know, try to sell everything we could in in second half 21, um, and so that's sort of kept us going from a, from a capital perspective, allowed us to staff up at the corporate level um, and, and hopefully be in a position to take advantage of better buying opportunities um, in the marketplace. Okay, got it. And can you tell us about your first deal and how you kind of sourced it and what went wrong and what went right? Wow, uh, yeah, we can. Um, so I sourced it on auction.com. Which is now 10x.com. Okay. It was a $1.4 million purchase price with about 400K of equity. Um, 95 unit deal, again, sort of low income location, low demographic location. We really support the mission of um, naturally occurring affordable housing or light tech housing. But, uh, you know, we were proud to provide safe, secure, comfortable homes at a fair price, at mm. a reasonable price all up and down the income spectrum and demographic spectrum. So, uh, you know, we, we basically started um, with a very um, challenging location asset and um, just did the work to value add it and make it perform as well as possible. Mm, okay. And, and why did you decide to structure Avid Realty Partners as a real estate private equity fund? Well, we're not a fund today. We're deal by deal. Right. Um, we may look to do a fund in the future. It's a challenging environment to fundraise a first fund right now, right? I'd say um, overall investment activity is down 70 to 80% mm -hmm. from 2021 levels. Um, but, you know, look, we're just out looking for um, good deals. A good deal can be defined a lot of ways. It can be a great basis relative mm. to what the asset is, what rent and income levels are, um, or it can be a great physical asset, new construction, you know, AAA location that's just going to get better. Um, so maybe that's a great deal. Mm. It still has to be at least a fair price okay. um, for, for that type of situation. But, um, you know, we're, we're just trying to find good deals that, we can deliver returns for our investors and their investors mm. um, and do great things for our property residents as well. So sort of, we do have this dual mission. I, I kind of think about it as, as profits with a purpose. We do have to make profits for our investors, of course, but we'd like to do great things for our residents as well. 
Okay. Got it. And I want to know, um, what, what did you consider a good deal back in 2015? And what do you consider a good deal now? Like, how has that changed over time? Um, the deals I was looking at in 2015 when I was just starting are not the same kinds of deals that I'm looking at today. Today, I'm trying to buy uh, bigger deals, uh, higher income levels, double um, A or triple A locations, mm. um, hopefully assets that we can own for the next 10 to 30 years. Even if I have to recapitalize those assets with new owners, new investors, um, you know, other deals, you know, if it's a great basis, maybe we, you know, buy the deal, do the value add program, um, ride the market or ride the location um, and, and sell, right? So some properties I'm sort of think about as dating and other properties I think about as sort of wanting to marry. Right. Um, and, and really it depends on the location. Okay. Um, but you know, what's changed is cap rates have, have definitely come down, right? Multifamily apartment is definitely more of an institutional asset class today than it was nine years ago. Mm. So, um, there's more hedge funds in it. There's more institutional capital in it. There's more private equity firms in it. Um, so all, all of this capital, um, has, really wrung out some of the inefficiencies in the market and cap rates have gone down. Um, rents have gone up a lot. So prices have gone up a lot. Mm. And right now in particular, because your cost of borrowing has skyrocketed, um, instead of borrowing at, you know, four and a quarter percent, now you're borrowing at, you know, six and a quarter percent. Right. Um, these deals, is their, their loans and mortgages are sizing to much smaller leverage points. So we're seeing 50 to 58% um, loan to purchase price typical today. Whereas um, when I was getting started, it was more like 70 to 75%. Mm. And so um, prices per door have gone up, rents have gone up and leverage has gone down. So um, you need much, much bigger equity checks to buy deals than you did eight years ago. Okay, got it. Okay. Um, and how many deals do you kind of source and underwrite before you actually move forward on a deal? 2023 is a, is a challenging time to do deals. So we've looked at a lot of deals to buy, to buy one. Um, but we're probably looking at, right. So there's, um, we sort of do a quick litmus test on a deal, right? We look at things like how old's the asset, What's the location? What market is it in? What submarket um, within that city is it in? Right again, how old is it? Is it a '70s deal? Is it a 2000s deal? Is it a 2010s deal? Um, we look at the current rent relative to what the broker is suggesting, like a guidance price or whisper prices, and if those factors line up, then we'll actually underwrite the deal. Mm. Um, we've underwritten, uh, probably way too many deals this year. Um, but we, you know, we underwrite, I don't know, 800 or a thousand deals for every one we buy wow. okay. and we sift through, um, and do the litmus test on, you know, three or 4,000 deals, okay. um, of which 800 or a thousand we might underwrite. Um, I have two full-time dedicated underwriting analysts that I've worked with very closely and trained them. 
Um, so it's a very significant effort, right? Bidding on deals, sourcing off-market deals, sourcing on-market deals, bidding, doing second round, best and final. I mean, it's uh, um, requires a significant organizational effort. Okay. Um, but that's what it takes to buy good quality institutional assets. Um, if you want to buy lower cost, older 60s, 70s stuff in lesser locations at 80 units or 100 units, sometimes you can find those deals on auction sites and all you have to do is be the highest bidder. Right. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's sort of another way. Um, what I would say is because the environment has shifted so much, um, we have to shift. And so what we're looking for now may or may not be the same thing as what we were looking for in deals a year ago. And, mm. and you have to stay flexible and mobile, um, uh, to, to be successful in a changing economic environment. Okay. And your primary focus is in some belt markets. Um, what's the primary driving factor behind this? And what are the three main points that you would look at um, when evaluating a market? Well, we want, we want job growth and population growth. That's number one. Uh, we want to do business in places where it's easy to do business. That's number two. Those are kind of the two most important things. I think number three and kind of related to number two, but we're looking more than ever at investing in locations where there's accountability for renters to actually pay the rent. Mm. Because, um, you know, having a lot of residents that don't pay the rent is a problem that's a lot bigger of a problem now than it used to be. Some of that has to do with politics, judges, um, progressive ideals that, um, you know, low-income people have had it hard and don't have to pay the rent and, uh, you know, give, give folks a pass. Um, I'm in the, I'm in a different school of thought. I'm in, an, I, you know, I believe in accountability. If people agree to pay rent in exchange to live someplace, then they should pay the rent. Right. So, um, you know, Atlanta has had a lot of problems with non-collection. Houston, which is a market that I own in, has had um, problems with non-collection. You know, Manhattan, right where we're sitting right now, and, and other uh, New York City boroughs have had a lot of problems with non-collection. Mm. And I just don't think it's right, right? If you allow the system to take 12 months or 18 months or 24 months to finally evict a non-paying resident, that is too much incentive for for um, people to not pay the rent, take the hit to their credit, and just move on. Yeah. Um, and I don't I don't agree with that. So, mm. you know, um, that's something that we're looking a lot more closely at now than than we used to. Mm -hmm. When you deal with riskier assets like hotels, how do you go about structuring the capital stack? So I've only dabbled in hotels. I've owned a couple assets. I sold both of my hotel assets in 2019, not because I saw COVID coming, but because I did, um, I did feel like the last recession was a long time in the past, and I didn't feel that I was properly capitalized to withstand a recession owning hotels. Mm -hmm. So we exited those hotels. Selling hotels is is not easy. Um, 
I'm not nearly as much of a hotel expert as um, large organizations that are dedicated hotel investment platforms, but leverage is lower. Uh, hotels don't have the benefit of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac financing at 10-year mm -hmm. treasury plus 200 bips. You have to go out and get bridge loans or CMBS or, or other, um, uh, you know, regional bank loans. Those those loans on those on those hotels now are in the eight to ten percent range, um, so it's a very heavy burden. Um, hotel revenues are very volatile, right? If a recession comes, it's not like multifamily where revenues dip five percent or seven percent. I mean, hotel revenues can fall thirty, forty, right. fifty percent peak to trough. Yeah, um, and so you really need a large bankroll. Um, and a very aggressive value bent when buying those assets. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a more thinly traded market. There's fewer players. It's a less efficient price discovery happening in hotels. And so I do think it's a it's a good asset class um, to go out and, and buy low if, if you have the money to do so. And can you tell the audience about uh, the reserve at Spanish Lake deal? Um, how were you able to reposition and stabilize this asset so quickly? Wow, blast from the past. Um, we owned this asset for 21 months. Um, we bought it at a, at a great basis. It had no on-site management, no staff was there. It was owned by um, a father-son duo that had owned it for a long time. Um, they were very hands-off and probably exhausted from um, owning the asset for a long time. Right. It was in a um, still somewhat challenging location from a from a demographic and rent level perspective. I think we bought it. Rents were uh, six fifty. Um, we did invest a bunch of money to upgrade units and reposition units, make unit interiors a lot nicer, clean up deferred maintenance of the property, beautify the property. Um, those actions allowed us to grow rents more towards eight fifty which for 800 foot units is still a pretty good price point, I mm. think, um, right? And so uh, we did run fast to reposition the property, do the value add. And we also, you know, bought it right, which allowed us to sell it right, mm. uh, leave, the, leave some meat on the bone for the next guy. He's a great guy, by the way. And um, I probably could have held on and gotten a better price um, maybe I would have exited before the downturn, maybe not. Um, but I chose to be pragmatic, mm. reasonable, flexible, and not too greedy, close the trade and move on. Right. Got it. And what were the returns all said and done? Uh, 21 months, we did a 71% IRR and a, uh, I think it was like a, you know, two and a half X multiple. I, wow. don't, I don't remember the exact, That's exact number, but. And how do you stay hungry and motivated and sharp after doing a successful deal like that? Uh, you know, the equity denominator when you buy them right is smaller than when you overpay. Okay. Um, uh, but it was a you know it was a seventy five unit deal, and we bought it right. So small denominator is what um, really enables those large numbers. If we were buying a thirty million dollar equity deal, it'd be a lot harder to generate those kinds of returns. Mm almost impossible. Um, so, you know, look, every every opportunity stands on its own and is unique from, from deal to deal. But um, 
even today, we're in the second inning of growing our platform. We're just getting started, right? So, um, you know, it takes a while to get started in the real estate business. It's a long tail business. And we've had to learn the business from scratch. I think, I think we have. I'm still learning. My team is still teaching me things. The market is still teaching me things. But um, we're, we're just getting started. So I'm, I'm excited about the future ahead of us. And I'm sure that we'll have our fair share of challenges as well. But, right. um, you know, we're, we're still hungry to go out and grow. Awesome. That's great. And can you take us, can you walk us through a deal that kind of took you through a roller coaster? And how did you end up taking it to the finish line? The value add hotel that I did, it's a lot like a value add multifamily deal, right? You're renovating units, you're um, optimizing operations, you're managing risk. Uh, uh, you know, it, it was challenging. Uh, you know, we had um, a tough time staffing the property with the right people. It's hard to hire great people. Um, great people are a lot more expensive than they used to be. But when you have large assets, it's worth it, mm. right? You don't want to try to cut corners and save a few bucks on a $30 million asset or even a $7 million asset. Mm. Um, but, you know, we definitely had some staffing challenges. Um, and really, there's no there's no easy fix. You just have to sort of um, address the problems the best you can, stay on top of every detail, hold people accountable, manage risk, try to make the best decisions possible. And look, I chose to sell that deal um, in 2019. I, uh, you know, it took about a year to sell the asset. Um, it wasn't a high-end, beautiful JW Marriott asset, an amazing location, or a Ritz-Carlton, right? This is a, a you know, exterior corridor, mm. um, you know, limited service asset. Um, so we did make money on that deal um, with, again, a small denominator, but I chose to be pragmatic and uh, exit the asset. Maybe I didn't make as, as much money as I thought we should have made. Um, but I avoided COVID with hotels and I moved on to other better problems, right? Um, the other thing is like, there's only so many hours and minutes in a day. Right. And if you're focused on less good problems, spending your time on that, you obviously um, don't have the freedom and bandwidth and time to go work on more strategic um, initiatives. So opportunity cost. Exactly. So opportunity cost was something that I was keeping in mind as I as I exited that asset. But you know that that was a roller coaster. Um, and look, the the whole the whole real estate investment profession is in the midst of a roller coaster right, right now. And some people are managing better and other people are managing worse. Mm. Okay. And can you tell us about some of your current investment opportunities for somebody that wants to be a capital partner? Sure. Um, so we're always uh, working on our next multifamily deal. Um, we've really been focused on large deals. I think in this environment, we're sort of still looking for large deals, but also refocusing on deals that might have a five to $10 million equity check. The reason being, if institutional investors don't want to come into a deal for any um, particular 
reason that usually has to do with them and their organization. Um, with the smaller equity check type of deals, we can still get those done with our network. Mm. Um, they're not the beautiful, brand new, shiny, class A, new construction deals that I still think make a lot of sense to buy right now. Um, but we, you know, we have to grow. We have to make smart, smart acquisitions. And, and so we are looking for the large institutional deals. And we do take individual high net worth deals into those deals also. Mm. Um, but we're also looking at more... Um, 80s, you know, uh, C assets and B locations um, type of deals that maybe we can buy again for for uh, 65 to 85 thousand per unit, mm. whereas two years ago those would have been 125 thousand a unit. So we're looking at those again, and then we do have um, uh, you know a sort of a 10 percent promissory note product for people that don't want to be in a particular deal if they. Um, uh, you know, just want 10% current pay mailbox money. Um, it's not in a deal. We're offering a term of two to five years mm -hmm. at the investor's discretion. Uh, it's a Reg D 506C product. So it does require all of our opportunities require investors to be accredited and we will verify accreditation status so that we're fully SEC compliant. Um, but that's another another uh, product that that we're always offering. The reason being, there's been um, you know people. Some people say ten percent. That's that's a high interest rate. Um, there's entire organizations that have been built borrowing money at ten percent and reinvesting it at fourteen, fifteen, sixteen percent. Um, and so we're we're happy to take on as much ten percent money as we can get, deploy it into our deals. Got and, it and uh, take the upside reward if we do better or the downside risk if we do worse. So Craig, you've been do doing this for almost 10 years. What advice would you give to someone, let's say they're 23 or 22 and they just graduated college and they want to be an investment manager? Wow. Okay. If you just graduated college and you want to get into the business, I'd say go work for a multifamily investment platform or a hotel investment platform. Um, again, maybe you can go work for an investment sales broker. Um, but get in there, learn the business from experienced, successful people, get a salary, get a paycheck so that you can pay your bills, um, manage your own risk, uh, and then, you know, look for, look for opportunities to um, get into the game. If you really mm -hmm. want to get into the game, at some point there will probably be a separation between you and your employer. It can be a, um, you know, a uh, something that's discussed. Maybe there's a partnership that can happen there. If you work for a big shop and they really like what you're doing, maybe you can go out and um, uh, attack a niche within the market that they're not in today, and maybe you can make them partners. Mm. Um, but you know, this is a game that requires more institutional resources than it used to, which makes it harder to start up on your own. Um, but it's totally possible. Right. I guess another path would be while you have a job, um, start with fix and flips, fix and flips. right? And um, get into the game and, and make smart decisions that way and build your team and build your track record. And, uh, uh, you know, or maybe if you want to um, get into new construction, maybe go work for a developer, um, maybe build your own single family house, start with one, right. grow to two, right? You might need to convince some friends or family to um leap in and you know invest some money with you um 
you have to make it good for them. Right. You have to deliver for them if you want them to ever write you a check again. Right. So, you know, sort of a few different approaches, but um, get a job so you can survive and do some work on the side to get going. Got it. Okay, great. And are there any submarkets or asset classes that you're looking to get into in the next decade? We want to continue to grow the multifamily business, right? We do view multifamily as essential. Roughly 40 or 45% of the country lives in apartments. Um, so it's a massive and huge opportunity. It is a very competitive business, but it's um, there's still plenty of room to um, make smart investment choices and find good deals. So we do want to continue to get a lot bigger in multifamily. I don't know if that means scaling to 5,000 units or 10,000 units over time, but um, we're in it for the long for the long haul, right? And there's no shortcut around how much time, effort, and hard work it takes to be successful. Mm. Um, I know Grant Cardone makes it look easy, and he's <laughs> flying private, and uh, all of this. Um, uh, you know, champagne and caviar and stuff, but um, most people live in the real world and in the real world, uh, it's not that easy, it's not that profitable and it's not that glamorous, um, but through a lot of time and hard work and grinding and grit and determination, um, it is possible to build something. So, um, you know, we, we like multi, and then to the extent we really scale and get additional capital partners, um, industrial is a phenomenal mm. asset class, um, and hotels is a great asset class. It's not what we're doing today. Um, the triple net lease business can be a really good business, mm. and there's a bunch of subcategories within that, and we've dabbled with some assets there and, and, and uh, very seriously um, uh, did work on creating a sort of a roll-up consolidation portfolio of net lease assets. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity out there, and it's uh, about building your, your corporate um, organizational and personnel infrastructure and finding the right capital partners that um, are true partners, you know, in it for the long haul also, um, and, and have a shared vision of what you guys are trying to build together. Okay, awesome. And do you have any like contrarian, high risk, high reward uh, views that you think may be worth looking into for, for a specific asset class or a specific submarket? I'm not a Bitcoin guy. I'm a real estate guy, but okay. uh, I think the Federal Reserve has done so much damage to the dollar through quantitative easing right. and electronic printing of M2 money supply um, that I think you know Bitcoin is, is an interesting hedge against the future of the dollar. Um, I have to think about everything going on out there, right? When you manage other people's money, um, that's a burden and a responsibility and, and, and it requires a lot of thought. Um, when I see that the Federal Reserve grew M2 money supply by 43% from March 2020 to February 2022, 42% more dollars exist equals 42% inflation. Right. Um, it was never 7% or 8%. It's, you know, 15% for, for two to three years. Um, so the Fed did enormous damage trying to stabilize the economy and then overstabilizing and, um, and 
you know, we, we sold assets into that strength, but we also bought an asset mm. in, into that strength. And so uh, I'm on both sides of the coin. Um, as part of that, the federal government and our leaders have also done a terrible job in 1980, U.S. federal debt to GDP was around 35%. Now it's 120%. Our federal debt is 120% of GDP versus 35% in 1980. So what is our dollar really worth, right? What, uh, what happens if the dollar um, be, you know, loses its status as global reserve currency? Um, bad things will happen. Um, it could be very bad things. Mm. And so I do think that digital gold um, with, uh, you know, 21 million total Bitcoin cumulative over time. Um, and, and it's no finite. Finite. A couple million of them have already been lost. Right. So there's only 19 million of them out there. Right. Um, I do think that everybody should probably put, you know, four or five, six percent of their net worth into um, Bitcoin, maybe Ethereum, a couple of the other top guys just to diversify. Because if you lose, you lose five, five or six percent of your net wealth. Hmm. But if you win, um, you know, it could be it could still be a 20 or 30 X return from current levels. So um, I'm unhappy with how the Fed and the federal government has treated its citizens, how it's responded especially to lower and middle income people that have been hit the hardest. And so because of that, I do think, um, you know, crypto and especially the very high quality, um, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, Solano, Cardano, a couple mm. of the others will probably do very well over time. But, uh, you know, I'm a real estate guy. It's not, it's not, I don't really have a, um, you know, a, I don't have anything in, in it to, to, right. to gain or to lose. Um, but just something that something I think, think about, about as yeah. I look at interest rates and fed speak and, um, some of that stuff. Okay. Awesome. Something, definitely something to consider. Um, and I want to know what you look for in a new hire for your company. Uh, I look for a great attitude, hunger, work ethic, um, absolute commitment. Mm. Yes. Being smart. Um, but being motivated, being hungry, being willing to uh, hop on a Zoom with me at 11 p.m. if that's when I have time to work on something with you, right. or on Saturday or on Sunday, right? We're not we're not a nine to five company. We're a we're a you know twenty four seven eight eight to eight to seven company, and then nights and weekends when when uh, necessary. Um, what we're trying to do is hard. And, and so someone who's got a great attitude, who's got persistence, determination, uh, a winning smile, um, obviously being good at something helps, um, but being trainable and smart means you can be good at a lot of things. And I want to ask about your thoughts about AI. Um, based on your knowledge of it, how do you think this will change things for the real estate business or for the world in, in general? We're starting to implement some AI technology solutions at our properties mm -hmm. to um, digitally harass non-paying tenants, basically, right? Daily follow-ups over text, email, and phone. We're starting to use AI to answer um, online inquiries about apartments, right? 
what do you have available? How much is it? When can I see it? And some of these things that are just automatic responses. So mm. there is a component that is um, potentially freeing up our property manager and leasing agents to go do other higher value things. Um, maybe physically knock on doors, which I can't do today. You're probably not sending a robot to go knock on doors, but right. maybe tomorrow. Um, on the corporate side, we're starting to be pitched AI um, tools to help us underwrite. And I don't want the same model that everybody else uses to underwrite. I have my own model. I built it from scratch. It works really well unless there's a kink in the system that doesn't work for some reason. Um, but we like our model. One interesting company out there has said, hey, give us your model and we will, you know, plug in our mm. AI to your model and um, save you a bunch of time. And I think that that's starting to be interesting. So it's our model, it's our proprietary analytics um, and saves our underwriting analysts some of the initial filling out of the data and so on. So that's that's interesting. Um, look, AI is is, is big. Uh, you know, if I was if I was smart, I would start an AI company, go go pitch Silicon Valley VCs, get a ton of money for a concept. But I'm not smart. I'm in the brick and mortar, um, slugging it out business, and you know this is where I'm at, uh, and I'm not pivoting at this point. So, um, but there's a lot of AI coming. It's going to be huge. What are, what are some of your other guests saying about AI? Um, well, there's a lot of advancements in prop tech that I've been seeing um, with construction process, the property management process. So it seems like all these different components are going to be slowly automated. But my question to you is, do you think the role of an investment manager can ever be automated? No, it cannot be automated, which is one of the main reasons I chose to become right. a sponsor and an owner because the computer cannot replace that function. It's a people business. Um, but there's definitely things that can be made more efficient so that us and our staff and, and our property staff or our corporate staff can do our jobs faster or better. Got it. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, look, phone, phone calls are another thing, right? You, you already know that, I don't know if this is AI, but the dialer dials you. If you answer, you know, it goes, waits a, a second, it goes, whoop, and then, Someone comes on automated. I will never buy anything from people that answer the phone after I do when yeah. they call me, but it doesn't prevent people from using a dialer and using technology to try to make them more efficient. Right. To me, the technology has to be great. It has to really work. It has to be a good customer experience for the customer or it will do more damage than, than good than right. benefit. So, um, you know, well, I guess it's a brave new world out there and we'll, we'll see where we go with it. Definitely. hundred percent. And Craig, I want to know, um, what does retirement look like for you? Uh, I don't think I'm ever going to retire. Okay. I, I think once I stop, I don't know, I'll probably be dead at that point. Okay. But, um, I think if, if I can ever get there and I'm far, far from it, um, retirement would be, uh, working less, maybe 
working from better locations, doing the work that I want to do, which is probably um, relationship focused, building relationships with key people, right? Mm -hmm. Looking at, at um, larger opportunities, sort of being higher level um, and maybe doing more, um, you know, charitable type type of work, giving back more. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I probably won't stop. Okay, great. And what would you say is your primary driving factor nowadays? Money, personal achievement, family, philanthropy. What keeps you going? We're still working to to build a real business, and and uh, I don't think I've made it by any stretch. And there's definitely um, choppy waters out there in this environment. So. Look, I'm just singularly focused on managing any risk in our current portfolio, um, buying the best deals that we can buy right now, um, and growing to five, ten, and hopefully twenty-five thousand apartment units awesome. down the road. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, family is important. Having fun, um, making money, doing good things are all important. Uh, you know, this isn't mine. Someone told this to me, but. If you don't make money, uh, then you can't have as much fun and you can't do as many good things. Right. So, um, you know, uh, not to be greedy or, or overly focused on money, but money obviously enables freedom and enables, um, uh, you know, you to go out and do other things, right? So um, uh, I'm working on building my organizational skills, hiring skills, people skills, organizational management and structuring skills so that um, if down the road I have more resources and we want to um, spend a lot more time on philanthropy that hopefully we can be very efficient and effective at awesome. it. I think if you're going to do something, you should do it well. Right. Awesome. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and Craig, I have my final question to wrap this up. What advice would you give to your 23-year-old self? What advice would I give to my 23-year-old self? I'd say, uh, go for it. Go go hard. Don't play it safe. Don't just go from safe job to safe job. Um, work to build something meaningful, which probably still involves having jobs, but um, getting into the game and uh, and working to build a real business. And don't don't wait on that. Go for it. Right. Give it 110%. Give it your all. And by the way, I'd rather try something and fail then never try um, then you know have the regrets of never trying never taking a chance so absolutely you know, just go for it absolutely definitely craig well thank you again awesome. i really appreciate you doing this thank you John. so valuable thanks again awesome